Well, friends, welcome back to the Space for Faith podcast, where we are creating space to have conversations where we are reimagining the church for our current moment. My name is Mike Goldsworthy, and um, I'm just so glad that you would spend some time uh, listening in and being a part of the conversations that we get to have here. In just a couple of minutes, uh, you're going to get to hear from my friend Jonathan Foster, and we talk a bit about his new book called A Theology of Consent. And what he gets into, this maybe for some feels a little bit lofty, but he makes it really accessible. He gets into uh, Rene Girard's work around mimetic theory, and then he gets into open and relational theology and how the two of those intersect. And they intersect in a way that he then ends up calling a theology of consent. But if you have no idea who Rene Girard is or what mimetic theory is, open and relational theology, uh, listen in because he's going to help to make those ideas a bit more accessible. And um, uh, Girard in particular, his work, like I, I haven't gotten to engage in a ton. And so it's really helpful for me to have folks like Jonathan who are engaging in it to help me understand it, help me uh, sort of process it and to make sense of the way it fits within a framework of how we read the scriptures, how we make sense of life, how we make sense of the way that we relate to one another. And um, yeah, there, there's so much there. So I think that you're going to enjoy that in a minute. But before we get there, a quick, um, I guess you could call it maybe commercial advertisement, pitch, whatever. Uh, we are coming up towards the end of the year here. I'm uh, putting this out and it's November 15th. And so we're getting close to the end of the year. And I just want to make a pitch before we move on for you to consider giving some end of the year support to the work that I'm doing, which includes putting out this podcast, but this is like such a small part of the stuff that I'm doing. In fact, um, those of you who do support me, I'm so grateful for it. And what it's enabled me to do is to be able to work with post-evangelical churches, to help those churches find each other and connect, to help them to learn from one another and to be more effective at the work that they're being called to, to help see more churches who are reimagining the church for our current moment. And you may or may not know this, um, but in the work that I do specifically with post-evangelical churches, I really don't make money uh, from this work for the most part at all. Most of these churches uh, can't pay much, if anything, for me to be helpful with them, or um, it's just something that I do out of like passion and care for like that I think that this is really important for this moment in the work of the church. And I can only do this and can only give my time to it because of of support, including stuff like the gathering that we have. We have 150 pastors and church leaders coming from across the country. I don't make money off of that. Uh, this year, we were able to just uh, over break even, but last year it cost us money. So it's not um, it's not something that uh, if you look at the work that I'm doing, I have to do all kinds of other things in order to allow me to be able to give myself to that kind of work. Now, uh, two years ago, I was able to raise about a third of my salary. And so I was able to give more time to it last year. Uh, this year, so this is, what is this, 2022, I did not uh, engage in fundraising work for myself this year for all kinds of different reasons that we could probably talk about another time if we want to. But because of that, uh, I 
significantly had to reduce the amount of engagement I could give to work with post-evangelical churches because I just had to do other stuff in order to pay the bills, right? Um, I, if you believe in what's happening in this church space, if you believe in like creating space for the church to be reimagining itself for its current moment, if you believe that these conversations matter, that these church leaders matter, that caring for them matters, helping them to connect with one another matters, helping to see resources built in the space matters. If you believe in that, I would um, encourage you uh, humbly, I guess I could say, to consider helping to support my work and in giving an end of the year gift to help set me up for giving some of my time in 2023 to be able to be dedicated towards that work. So if that is something that you would like to do, uh, I'm going to put all this in the show notes, but you can make out a check to We Ministries, W-E Ministries. <laughs> we uh, People ask all the time about that. And it, here's here's a short of it. This is another one that we could have a longer conversation about. But this is a friend of mine's nonprofit who lets me raise support for this work through that nonprofit and uh, generously gives me the space to be able to do that. So uh, it has to be checks. There's no electronic way of giving to it. But it's We Ministries, and you can send that to 6285 East Spring Street, number 474, Long Beach, California, 90808. Again, that's to We Ministries, 6285 East Spring Street, number 474, Long Beach, California, 90808. And uh, friends, I'm so grateful that you would even consider uh, helping to make this work possible, helping to uh, free up my time to be able to give myself to this work. And so um, thanks for considering that as you are thinking about ways that you might support different works, different ministries, different nonprofits uh, at the end of this year. So thanks for thanks for considering me and my work. Now, let's turn it over to the conversation that we have here with my friend Jonathan Foster. Friends, welcome back, and I'm excited for you to get to meet a friend of mine, Jonathan Foster. And Jonathan, we I was trying to remember when we first connected, maybe it was like a year-ish ago, uh, as you had kind of been going through your own journey of faith, and somehow our paths crossed, and I got to um, meet you and hear a bit about your church journey and your leadership journey and your your theological journey. And so I'm excited for folks to get to to know you a little bit on here. Do you mind like sharing with folks a little bit? Like, could you give like the um, elevator pitch of your story? That's that's probably a terrible way of saying it because like that's like asking you to spend 30 seconds sharing about who you are. No, no. I mean, what I think is um, my question is how long is the elevator ride? I mean, I just assume that we're going to the really, really high floor. So I got plenty of time. Empire State Building. Perfect. We got, yeah. Perfect. Then we're good. Um, yeah. Thank you very much, Mike, for having me on. And uh, it's good to connect with you. So, gosh, let's see. Uh, I kind of grew up in a relatively normal-ish evangelical home. Dad was a pastor. Both granddads were pastors. Lots of that happening in my family. And so, surprise, surprise, when I grew up, I felt like I should be a pastor, too. And, uh, was a church planner and that was, that was a lot of fun. You know, it's fun to be a planner cause you're kind of, you know, the denomination doesn't really know what to do with church planners. So they kind of just stick you out on the edge and 
you get to try different things. Um, and then as I'm trying different things and just doing normal pastor life, whether you're a planter or not, you, you interact with people. And the more I interact with people, the more I realized it was just a growing realization that my worldview doesn't really leave a room to think through some of these things like I wanted to think through them. And honestly, it, pro it probably wouldn't have gone much further than that, but I just, I personally have just went through some massive, very dramatic things. Um, and probably the, the biggest one of those things was our, uh, our oldest daughter died, uh, 2015 on new year's day. Hmm. And so, you know, in the aftermath of that, um, and I'm fast forwarding through a lot of stuff, but cause I'm, I'm still on the elevator here. Uh, in the aftermath of all that, I, I just, yeah, I needed to come up with a better a better way to process the questions. And so what I'm saying is I didn't even need to come up with better answers because in the end, the best answers always lead to better questions anyhow. I just needed a better system. And um, so one thing kind of led to another and I landed on a Rene Girard pretty quickly, mimetic theory that was super helpful for me. It helped me have a, I think a healthier understanding potentially of what was going on, not only with Jesus, but what goes on uh, in culture and in religion. And then I pulled on that thread for a while. And then I kind of landed in uh, also an open and relational theology. And those two things aren't the same. Open and relational and mimetic theory are, are really different disciplines or different thoughts. Um, but I landed in open and relational stuff. And then uh, most recently just finished up a dissertation where I, where I brought together those two things um, into my work. And so that's a lot of... That's a lot of years I just covered really quick, but it's, yeah. it's basically, um, yeah, I've kind of grown up in the church and most of it was good and most of it worked until it definitely didn't work. And then I had to try new things and, um, I'm really, really glad I did. I'm really thankful for, for the whole journey. Hmm. Um, Hey, just a quick note. You're the mic when it rubs against your sweater. Oh, sorry. Gets a little thing. Just a, okay. just a heads up. Not All a big right. deal. Um, well, I appreciate you sharing all of that, uh, and I want to get into, because your book that you have coming out, Theology of Consent, is your dissertation being turned into a book of that work of combining mimetic theory along with open and relational theology, and I want to get into some of that, because I think like it'd be super fascinating to hear those things. Before we get there, I wanted to ask you maybe another personal question, Sure, if it's okay. Yeah. I'm curious for folks, especially, well... I'm thinking of folks who listen to this who are on their own faith journeys, but maybe aren't leading a church in the midst of that. Mm -hmm. But I'm also thinking about people who are in church leadership who are going through their faith, sort of expanding and changing, and the church that they led is in a different place than where they are now. And so I'd be curious for folks to hear a little bit on, like, what was that experience like for you to be leading a church, even one that you like you started the church? and that you are changing and you're finding yourself in some different places. How do like, what does that do to you? How does that feel? Yeah, that's a really good question. Super challenging. Um, it's one of the more difficult things I've ever had to do to realize that, you know, my entire system of the way I'm processing life and theology and meaning, um, is being disassembled in real time while I was, you know, pastor's 
they're they're the primary meaning makers for people, right? Things happen and then we gather on the weekends and among other things, the pastor kind of pieces things back together. It it was it was really impossible for me to piece it back together because the old system it, it just didn't work. And so that was incredibly challenging, very hard. Um, there was a lot of great things. You know, we developed a lot of great friendships and a lot of young people were very, when I, when I say a lot, by the way, the church never got to more than a couple hundred people. So it wasn't like a mega church. Thank God it wasn't a mega church. Um, <laughs> but relatively speaking, you know, proportionally, a lot of young people um, who were really, you know, interested in kind of the new path that this was going. So while on the one hand, uh, we were losing people my age and people who were kind of invested in an older system. On the other hand, we got lots of young people coming in. Of course, they had no money, so that presented a whole new problem. Um, and then the denomination that I was a part of, I used to be a part of the Church of the Nazarene, um, grew really uncomfortable with uh, some of the things that I was talking about. And so that led to them voting me off the de denominational island a few years ago. So that was a super challenging thing hmm. as well. So trying to answer your question, it sucked, but I'm really thankful for all of it. And I'm, I'm proud and grateful for what we've been through. Hmm. I appreciate that. I appreciate your perspective on it. I was thinking about a few folks that um, are not in church leadership that I've talked to that have tried to understand some of the work that I'm doing of trying to create spaces for pastors to connect who don't feel like they fit and belong anywhere anymore. And one of the things that they'll often ask me is they're like, well, why can't they like I my beliefs are different than where the, the church that I'm a part of. And like and I can still find community there and I can still find friendships there. Like, why can't pastors do that? Why can't pastors still hang with folks in their denomination? Why do they need new spaces to build new friendships? Like, did you find that like it was, it was like you could still hang in those spaces and they forced you out or that like it just wouldn't work anymore? You know, it's probably a combination of things, um, not the least of which is my own immaturity and, you know, probably some things that I didn't do as well as I could have. Um, for whatever reason, I became a threat. And, and this happens a lot of times in certain situations. Uh, it laughable to me because we were just a small church plant, you know, didn't bring in a lot of money, what wasn't very significant. But apparently at some level, I became a threat. And... Um, and when that started to happen, you know, the denomination, they, they just have to. It's just the way most evangelical world operates. They had to kind of clamp down on it. Um, I mean, it was wrong. It was absurd. But um, so it kind of forced me out. I, I tried to bring it up with other pastors and colleagues, but I kept getting, um, I kept getting pushback and quite a bit of panic. I'm sure you have seen that. I'm sure our listeners have experienced that at times. You can read the body language. You feel the anxiety start to increase. Uh, you see the face redden, you know, and they start dropping the churchy language in it. You realize after a bit, um, yeah, the, I, I'm not, I didn't have room to go there. The, the, uh, the regular, not, not, yeah, the regular kind of lay person could probably have community better um, because they can kind of slide in and out. But the pastor, it's almost impossible when it gets to that situation because... There's just, there's just too much pressure for everyone. And, hmm. um, so yeah, it was, it was really hard. And, and, um, uh, 
Yeah, our saying, I, I, don't even, I can't remember if we mentioned this, our saying the Flashpoint wound up being over LGBTQ stuff. Now, previous to that, the way I landed there was really Rene Girard scapegoating. When I, when I kind of got my mind wrapped around, oh gosh, yeah, this is, this is why Jesus died um, because we scapegoated and we killed him. And then I looked around and I was like, well, who are we scapegoating now? Well, there's no shortage there, but in my situation, the LGBTQ crowd was for sure like the group. And so that's when I started saying, this isn't, this isn't right. Even if I did think what they're doing is wrong, um, which I don't, but even if I did, uh, there's a better way to treat them. You know, there's a more hospitable way to go about this. And so that it's interesting how the Girardian stuff led me to that. And it proved to be really true because they wound up scapegoating me over me pointing out their scapegoating ways. Huh. <laughs> so I think that's a good transition then for us to get into some of the stuff from your book mm -hmm. and to, maybe that's even where we start. Like, as you were talking about your own journey, I was thinking of, um, uh, Scott Erickson, who we've had on the podcast, he he at our gathering last year created this image that became really helpful for me that he used at the gathering that was uh, essentially like a it showed a progression of moving from head to heart to hands. So he essentially said like the the way that we had been enculturated was like you establish a certain way of thinking about a thing, right? Like a theological framework or whatever. It begins you begin to be passionate about that thing. And then you start interacting with with real people as a result of it. And then so hands were sort of at the middle of this picture. And then where it moved from hands was that as you start engaging with real people because of what your theology told you to do, and then you had a passion around it, as you engage with real people, that began to change what you your passions were because of the real people, which then forced you to have to ask questions about what you thought and believed. And it's sort of like that that this like, Real life, real situations, real people force you to have to like rethink some things. Yeah. So for you, it seems like one of the things that that led you down a path of was discovering Rene Girard and mimetic theory. And so um, for folks like me who are not reading tomes of Girard's work, like what, like what is mimetic theory? How does scapegoating fit into the way that we have understood the gospel? And then even like, as you start weaving it into like seeing it through the lens of your experience of church, like how does that all work? Yeah. Wow. I'm so happy when someone asks me about mimetic theory, get a chance <laughs> to talk about it. You're making my day now. Um, it's a, a normal coffee time conversation. Yeah, sure. We have with folks. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about mimetic theory. <laughs> well, first of all, what I think Scott is saying is so true. There's that beautiful symbiotic interaction between what we're doing physically and what's going on mentally. And sometimes leaning into a thing physically and interacting is the thing that then gets the brain going in the right direction. And sometimes I think it works the other way. And, and probably all the time it's back and forth. You know, for me, I was in a space of grief and um, just, just, you know, distraught and trying to figure out what it is that I believed. And, and really in 2015, um, at the height of like the extreme intense grief, my, my base, well, my first question was basically what the hell just happened. My next question was uh, kind of like, like, why did my kid have to die? But it wasn't in a complaining way so much as like, what, what does this mean? This is so absurd. I mean, it's just, it's the craziest thing to, to all of a sudden be uh, bereft of this relationship so suddenly. 
And so that led me to thinking more and deeply about, well, why did Jesus have to die? Because I think for those of us who are Jesus followers, probably all our questions about pain, like tributaries, wind up flowing into this bigger river question of, like, why did Jesus have to go through what he did? And I'm a little bit embarrassed to say that, you know, at that point I was in my late forties um, and I hadn't really nailed down, um, no pun intended, I hadn't really nailed down, you know, what I, what I thought, maybe that is pun intended, <laughs> what I thought about atonement. Um, but I, when I landed on Girard, it was so great because it gave me the language to see, oh, uh, I know why we killed, I know why Jesus died. Because we killed him. That's why. It's not because God needed. It, it just doesn't, it just didn't, none of those old answers made any sense. There was no resonance that God would need blood. How would that even work? How does, how does paying something off get to forgiveness anyhow? You know, I've never once had to beat one of my kids in order to give forgiveness to one of the other kids. So all of that stuff, I was having all this discordant, you know, music happening anyhow. And so Gerard came along and helped me see how it is we got here and what we were thinking. So that's the backstory. Now to try to set up to answer your question, what is well, no, that? Theory? I mean, that's, it's super helpful because I think that's a lot of um, where people are having a bit of discord. I mean, I think yeah. a lot of us have hit that point where we're like, oh, hey, this like makes God out to be a bit of a monster. This, it, this makes God appear less loving than me. Um, this like, this pits God against Jesus. And like, so I think there's a lot of us that have had that kind of like discord. And then you're like, well, then what do we rebuild? What do we put in its place? And so, yeah, so you found Gerard to be helpful. Yeah, you're exactly right. And thankfully I landed on this. And so, um, so I'm, maybe I'll just kind of run through the sequence of mimetic theory. It's not really linear. Probably everyone will understand that, but you know, to try to understand it, you kind of have to, um, you have to present it in somewhat of a linear way. So first of all, it's all, it's all built on desire. Uh, maybe I'll just, I'll do the rough, the, the quick points real quick and I'll go back and unpack them. But desire that leads to imitation, that leads to conflict, that leads to scapegoating, that leads to the ritualization of scapegoating out of which religion is formed, according to Girard. So all of this is built on desire. It's this idea that uh, it's a Freudian, Lacanian, Hegelian idea that None of us really know what we desire. I really only know that I like, like, I like what you like, you know? I mean, I'll probably, I, I don't know. I'll probably buy that microphone after this, <laughs> after this, uh, interview, or, you know, I'll see some your glasses or something or, you know, vice versa. None of us really know what we want. We're just, we're, we just are really aware of what the other person wants. You know, the entire marketing system is built upon this. It's a uh, marketing the desires of the other person. So Girard would say our desires are mediated by the other. When the car commercial sells you a car, they are not telling you what kind of car you want to drive. They're telling you what kind of car this really cool person is driving and enjoying. And that really cool person is always a little bit better looking than me. I know it's hard to believe. Uh, more affluent than me. You know, it's got, a, got it together just a little bit more. And so this desire thing, it's like uh, this, this psychological movement that goes on. Um, so this desire starts to happen. I don't really know what I want, but I see that other person. It looks like they're kind of put together. 
And at the same time, I'm aware of how much I'm not put together. So my own, to use philosophical language, maybe uh, lack, like I have this intense awareness of my lack. And so I begin to desire what they desire. Meanwhile, they feel that energy at some level. And so they begin to then reciprocate by desiring even more the thing that I desire. So now the car becomes a super popular thing because I'm giving it my desires. Other people are giving it. It drives the value of the whole thing up. Um, and we see this play out time and time and time again and lots, lots of different stuff. Um, trying to become like the other person. One of my favorite go-to examples is, this dates me a little bit, but uh, when I was younger, you know, Michael Jordan was the thing and uh, there's never been a better mimetic illustration of mimetic commercials than the Gatorades and the McDonald's. I think actually it was Gatorade and the whole thing was be like Mike. Be like Mike. Yeah. Be like Mike. It had nothing to do with drink this stuff. It'll make you stronger, but you know, or faster or, you know, healthier. It was, it was really just be like Mike. So desire leads to imitation. Um, I'm fast forwarding through a few things, but, but what happens with imitation, according to Gerard is. Because it plays out against our extreme awareness of our own lack and our own insecurities and anxiety, as we imitate each other, we grow, um, it grows conflictual. We start to be conflicted and we start to look at each other as rivals. So rather than, um, oh, you've got this thing and I can have it too, it's more like, oh, I got to get that thing before Mike gets all of it. Because if he gets all of it, I can't have it, which of course plays into our scarcity mindset the opposite of an abundance mindset. And so this imitation leads to conflict. And then at the edge of, basically at the edge of conflict, Girard came up with this brilliant thing. Actually, he probably more than discovered it. He probably uncovered it through a variety of different ways, which we can talk about if we want. But he realized that what we do at the edge of the precipice, like right before we go to blows, well, first of all, sometimes we do go to blows. But a lot of times what we do is as you and I are fighting over what it is, whatever it is we're fighting over and giving it all of our energy, we decide at some point to agree together in unity to turn and point our fingers at someone else and they become the scapegoat. And all that animosity that we have, then we, we transfer it or we project it, we offload it onto the back of the other person and then we scapegoat them it's like this beautiful not beautiful, brilliant, sinister, but incredibly effective move that um, Gerard says that humanity has figured out how to do over thousands of years. Just as like subconsciously. Um, yes. For many, maybe not all. Um, it's usually, yeah, no, it's not a, it's not, tip, it's not a conscious decision because if okay. it is conscious, it doesn't really work. But it, so, yeah, it's like, uh, I, the economy is rough and somebody has more than what I have. And the way that I start to deal with that is that we start to point to some sort of outside entity that has disrupted the economy, a group of people, a person, a political system, whatever that, and start to direct the anim that my experience of life and my view of lack is now, is now because of that person, that group that system. Yeah. That's ba that's basically the idea. And what it does, it's, it's, it's built on this, um, it's built on this need of needing to unify with other people. And so it's really powerful because then groups get to come together. Seemingly different kinds of groups can come together 
I was talking about this recently. For example, um, you know, it's it's been it's so shocking to have watched what's happened with the evangelical world and Donald Trump over the last several years. You know, Donald Trump ostensibly is not someone 10 or 20 years ago that the evangelical world would have. I mean, they're just completely different kind of personalities in, in many respects. But what they, those two groups, they, they come together and they unify in, in, a, in a way because Trump made it easy. And by the way, I don't think Trump is the devil. I don't think evangelicals are the devil. I just think this is a great, great example. But Trump made it easy for folks to come and to offload their animosities what, who, onto whoever, whether it was the Black Lives Matter or the Haitians or the Democrats, it doesn't matter. He's great at offering up scapegoats um, and tapping into that power and that strength, that unity that you can gain as you then project your stuff onto the other person. Well, so historically, Girard says, this is what we do. We project our stuff onto the other person, and then it justifies our reason for getting rid of the other person. And this becomes the scapegoat. So we, uh, you know, there's a, there's a hundred different examples. We throw them in the volcano. Uh, we push them into the gas ovens. We lynch them on the tree. Um, but also we don't sit with them at the lunchroom table. Um, we turn our backs on them, you know, when, when the pressure grows intense. I mean, there's a million and one different ways to scapegoat. And um, it's, it's, it's always built on two lies. It's built on one lie is that the scapegoat is guilty. And the other lie is that the crowd or the group is innocent. And so it's yeah. very sinister. And so when I'm reading through all this, I'm like, oh gosh. And of course, scapegoating, I mean, that's biblical language. And I'm like, well, that sounds a lot like what happened with Jesus. Yeah. And so I started thinking, oh, I think this is what happened with Jesus. Like, and you even see it, um, the little passage, I can't remember where it's at, where one of the gospel writers says that previous to Jesus, Herod and Pilate weren't even friends, but they came together over that. They, they, they created mm -hmm. unity in order to, which I think is, and it's and obviously the religious leaders. Right. Um, yeah. Same thing. Yeah. You've got religious leaders who wouldn't work together normally or who wouldn't even like be in cahoots with government leaders yeah. that hated the Romans. around this. Yeah. Yeah. So all three, you got the political in uh, Herod, you got the probably the financial, excuse me, in Herod and the political in Pilate and the religious in Caiaphas, uh, it's the pattern. It, it's the scapegoating pattern. And Jesus willingly steps into that. And that was important for me to, and it is important for me as I continue to, you know, work through all of this. Um, I don't think God made him. I think Jesus chose. I think this is all about a consent thing. And so he became the scapegoat, but he did it to reveal our scapegoating ways. All right. I know we're going through a no, lot of stuff, but. Oh my gosh, this is super fascinating. Can you like, um, before you go wherever you're going to go, you said something <laughs> about like, we start to build um, like, I don't remember the language used, but like religious systems essentially around scapegoating. Is that where you're about to head? At? Yes. Okay, good. Yeah. I want to hear a bit about how yeah, we do that. Yeah, exactly. So you got uh, desire leading to imitation, leading to conflict, conflict leading to scapegoating. And then so we scapegoat, and the part of the reason we do it is, well, frankly, is because it works. It builds some kind of, it creates some kind of peace. And so some kind of, probably catharsis is the best word, happens with the community and with the crowd, and peace sweep, sweeps through. But it's never a peace that lasts. It's a fake peace. 
you know, it's a Pax Romana piece. It's the peace of Rome, which is basically we'll kill someone to get to peace. Doesn't work. Um, so what happens then? Well, after a while, all the tension builds back up. And when we get back to the edge of the precipice again, we essentially say in so many words, oh, remember what we did last time. Let's, we'll pick another scapegoat. Again, this is all subconscious um, or, or um, invisible, basically. We'll pick another scapegoat. You know, we'll add some new liturgy. We'll pray this prayer and we'll do it again. And it, it happened again and again and again. So what Girard says is that religion is formed out of the sacralizing pra scapegoating practice. So religion comes from the scapegoating practice, which is incredible if it's true. And I'm, I'm inclined to think that it is because we've all heard, in fact, we've probably said, religion inspires violence. And, and I do think there's some truth to that, but actually it doesn't go deep enough. Gerard actually says it's violence that has inspired re religion. And then religion reinforces violence. And then religion would reinforce it and keep us. So, so basically religion for Gerard was created to, um, to maintain, yeah, to maintain order. And, and by the way, there's a positive element to this too, which is why it's also sinister and, and kind of nuanced because the positive element is like you do, you do need to have order in order for things to, you know, happen in society and with groups and organization, but we've chosen to do it um, through victimization and through creating sacrifices. And so it's, it's always, it's, it's unanimity minus one. That's what Gerard okay. would say. So, um, I can look back and I can see, uh, examples in the Hebrew scriptures where we see this happening. I can see, like, I can make sense of how you're talking about the experience of Jesus in this. What, what is this looking like in the church experience today? Like what would be an example of how religion is being formed out of a scapegoating practice in some like church experiences? Well, the, the examples are endless and scapegoating itself is a bit, it's got a bit of AI to it. Like it's constantly reorganizing and re-updating its operating system so that it can be cloaked because the more you uncloak it, the more, you know, it doesn't work. It's a big piece of how to get beyond this is awareness of all of it. Um, but it's constantly an operation. I mean, the first thing that came to my mind when you asked is the whole Christian nationalist thing that's happening. I mean, clearly th these are people among other things. Um, and, and again, they're probably, some of them are probably not bad people. They're just caught up in this system where they've been conditioned to form a group over against another group and to call that other group bad so that they can call themselves good. You know, in this case, it's, you know, anyone who proposes anything, what they think is anti-American, which of course could huh. be any number of things, but it's a, it's a scapegoating, it's a scapegoating practice. All of our politics, you know, are built on, on scapegoating. Um, yeah. W would you, I'm thinking of like some, um, uh, I, I've been trying to like, in some of my conversations, think of like, okay, what's the like, uh, not throwing the conservative crew under the bus example. What's the like more progressive example. I've been in some experiences with some more progressive churches that essentially like find ways to paint 
conservatives and evangelicals as the bad guy in order to sort of prop themselves up as like, look at we're doing the good thing. Would that sort of fit within this kind of a, a theory? Yeah, hundred yeah. percent. And I think that's super important for the space that you are in because because uh, scapegoating, I think, is closely often linked to deconstruction, and um, it's really flammable. It can take off quickly, and people can feel really justified in scapegoating that other person, in part because when you unpack all of this, you realize that when I'm scapegoating someone, the reason I feel so justified and so passionate about it is often, and I don't know that this is always true, so I, I hope the listener doesn't get too mad too quick, so just hear me out. But, but, but often what we're doing is we're projecting our own crap onto them. So nothing gets me yeah, quite yeah. as riled up as when I see myself in the other person. So I get, to, I get to be morally outraged at the other person when in reality, at a deeper level, it, you know, we're all just like a mirror. We're looking at, we're looking at our, our own desires are that other person. And it reminds us of ourselves and it really, really trips us up. So I think you're absolutely right. I think that, um, it's easy for me to scapegoat conservatives. And I should link back to my earlier story because I do think it's true. I pointed out the scapegoating practices of the Church of the Nazarene, and then they scapegoated me, which I, I told, I was telling this, them this in real time when it was happening. I knew it was happening. Well, the real challenge became after that happened because the real challenge for me then became, Jonathan, will you now scapegoat them for scapegoating you? for pointing out their scapegoating practices. Yeah, will you perpetuate the cycle? Will I perpetuate the cycle or will I lean into grace and love and mercy and goodness? And man, it is hard. It's hard. Um, I mean, I know I'm skipping, I'm skipping over a few things here to get to this, but this makes me think of it. You talk about love, in your book, you talk about love that is non-binary, non-violent, non-scapegoating. Um, which I, I appreciated that framework and those three together I thought were really interesting. Maybe you could um, elaborate on what that looks like a little bit because that to me sounds a little bit like what you're describing, like you've got to move to this other kind of place in order to not perpetuate the cycle of what's been done to you and feel real justified in doing it because it's really easy to feel justified in doing it. Right. It's really easy and also sometimes... People are guilty of doing things, which adds another layer of complexity to this. Right, 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 right. And yeah, so, yeah. It's not like, yeah, they, it's not like they, it, the, the, what was done to you, it's like, oh, well, that, that was fine and that's right. all good. Like they, they were wrong in what they did to you. And so there is some sort of. Right. Uh, and, yeah. and yeah, and this is true of a lot of folks who may be tuning in, like, you know, they've been hurt by the church or something's happened. I mean, we see this every day. And so their anger is justified. And so it's just, it gets, it starts to get tricky as to how to enact justice. But um, yeah, your question about love, uh, thanks for asking that. So for me, I've had to redefine a lot of the words that I was used to growing up and that I'd used my whole life, which is, which is hard because you have to learn, it's basically like learning a new language. And anytime you learn a new language, you know, especially the older you get, if any of the adults, you know, as an adult to learn a new language is, is really challenging. We've been going to Haiti for the last seven years. And every freaking time I go, I'm like, I sit down and try to learn 
I'm terrible at it. It's just my brain is apparently already formed in certain ways. So that's really hard. So that's one option to redefine things. Another option is to make up new words. Well, that's also really hard because you're, you're, you're just teaching your brain every time you see this word to go a completely different route or to make up a new word. So there's a variety of different words that I've had to re uh, put like the defibrillator on to kind of resuscitate. Love is one of them. I, I realize that love, I think for me, love is, is, I think that God is love. And I think that the fundamental characteristic of love is consent. And so I've had to wrestle with that again and again, because all of us, and I actually think a lot of people probably like that idea. They want their God to be love. And by the way, it is biblical. But it didn't work in the way in my old systems because love was just, it was too watered down. It was too wide open. Some of that's because the English language, you know, Hebrew has got far less words. And so uh, the English language, you know, it's in, in Greek, it, it, it's hard to translate. Um, but yeah, it just gets, it just gets to over, overused. And so I had to train myself whenever I think of love to think of non-binary, non-violent, non-scapegoating. Non-scapegoating, of course, already we've begun to unpack that. Um, I want to love my brother and sister in a way that's, um, that's free of my, my scapegoating tendency of which I'm guilty of like everyone else. Non-violent in that, uh, it's similar to non-scapegoating, but like I, I believe God is love and I think love is fundamentally non-violent. It's challenging to get there, but consent helps me to get there. So I don't think God does violence to get to love. I don't think God even uses violence. I don't think God uses anything because using is not a loving move. Controlling is not a loving move. I don't even like people who use me or control me. And I know this sounds heretical probably to some people listening, but I got to this place where I was like, I don't want God to use me or control me. Um, I'm into consent. And so, um, and I think there's a way to get there. It's, it's challenging to reprogram yourself. But so non-scapegoating, non-violent. Then the other one you mentioned was non-binary, which just helps me stay in the fluid, the fluidity of the whole thing to not have to box things into black and white, to stay more gray, flexible, permeable. Um, so when I think of love now, my brain immediately goes to those three things, hmm. but for a long time, it, it probably didn't. Yeah. it's a really helpful category. I, I could genuinely, like, I think we could spend all of our time together on, on Gerard and mimetic theory. Yeah. It's so like so many questions for you, but, uh, but we will miss so many other things that we wanted to talk about. And so you bring up the idea of consent, you're talking, uh, which is the title of your book, Theology of Consent. And said that like consent is um uh necessary for love is that is that how you said it or it was a fundamental aspect of love is consent right is i think that's said. the case i think god is love and that the fundamental characteristic of love is consent and yeah yeah i mean can you like unpack that a little bit like what what does that mean for um us, I know like this is the this is probably asking you to take your whole book and to turn it into one paragraph but like what does that mean for God to actually consent like to have room for consent or that God consents what does how how exactly are you approaching that it's such a crazy thought it's an absurd thought um which is why I love it so much um maybe I'll say it this way 
Well, first of all, theology of consent, actually there, there's, a, there's an essay written by uh, Simone Wei, Simone Wei, um, who was a uh, intellectual, French intellectual, uh, written probably a hundred years ago. And so I found out, I found that out late in the project, um, which I thought was kind of cool because some of the stuff she talks about uh, is, is really cool. Um, one of the things she says is that God doesn't do violence to secondary causes to accomplish his means. Basically, God's not into using violence to, you know, to, to hurt anyone, to do anything in order, you know, for some better outcome. I mean, that's just morally and ethically absurd. But um, I remember I was reflecting upon uh, Mother Mary, because I kind of think this might be a microcosm of a lot of what's going on. Mm. And the, like the absurdity that love had moved into Mary's life. And I'd never really thought about this until the last three or four or five years, probably up until then, I just assumed God stepped in and made this thing happen. But when you look at it that way, you realize how oppressive and how uh, denigrating that is to Mary. And when you look at it, when you think about the context of our day and age and how women have been, you know, used. And so to have huh. this, huh. yeah, to have this big omnipotent hierarchical God, which by the way, omnipotence is a huge thing I talk about in the book. And it's a big yes. part of open and relational theology. Um, it didn't, it didn't work for me anymore. I no longer thought that God all of a sudden showed up and impregnated Mary. What? That's, that's just weird when you think about it. So when Mary says, let it be, it's like the most beautiful sentence in the whole text. And I remember reflecting on how strange it was that something so small, this teenage girl could be the fulcrum of something so big. And I'm in a coffee shop and I'm typing and I, there's just like this holy kind of awkward thing, which by the way, I'm not, when you write, that almost never happens. Most of it's super boring. Um, but in this case it was, and I was sitting in that thing and something whispered or I whispered, I don't know. But, uh, the next thought I had was maybe the whole cosmos revolves around consent. Hmm. And I'm like, oh crap. I think that that might be true. That might be true. And it's so, it's so absurd. I mean, so 70,000 words later, that's basically what I'm trying to do. And I, I don't do a great job of it, but that's basically what I'm trying to do is to get to what does it mean that something so, you know, the, the veracity of the spirit of love, which is God, um, would consent to not only Mary, but to anyone and everyone, and not just humans, but to, you know, quarks and microscopic things and to redwood trees and to the oceans. And, and so I've been trying to play with that. And it's, it's super challenging because, well, it's completely opposite of the way we've been conditioned to think. And it also opens the doors to some really challenging kind of like situations. I don't yeah, know. Like, Did I, am I answering the question? I can't remember what the no, question No, I think so. And it, it's super interesting to me, even like once you start moving into um, God consenting God's own self to like quarks into the universe, putting God in a uh, relational and interdependent uh, experience with all of the matter of the universe, um, which, yeah, it starts like messing with you a bit. Like there's something really 
beautiful about that as I'm hearing you talk about that. And then there's also like, there's pieces within me that like, like start to tense up a little bit that it's like, oh, I'm supposed to protect God, that God is supposed to be um, other and God's otherness needs to be sort of protected within all of that. And even, um, I remember I had an undergrad, one of my professors was an open theist. And so that's where I was first, like, you know, 20 years old or something exposed to open theism. And the idea that God wouldn't uh, know the future because the future couldn't fully be known. I remember him saying that statement and me being like, no, like that's like, right? Like you have this, like, there are these classical ideas about God that I'm supposed to hold on to God's omnipotence. And you actually say like, um, you push against, and you were just saying even earlier, God's omnipotence and actually even say like it's been destructive to us and that what actually matters, if I remember right, is you were saying like God's uh, omnipresence is much more significant and needs to take, like we need to sort of shift away from that. So anyways, all that to say like, um, yeah, there's something really beautiful and interesting about that. And it also like, like causes this like, like, oh, like what, what do you do with that? And what does it mean for God to be consenting in an interdependent relationship with all of the matter of the universe? Like, I don't know. I just yeah. rambled a whole bunch about a thing that, no. you know, you're, you're smirking here that you're like, yeah, that was. No, I'm yeah. not, I'm not smirking. I'm just no, like. I didn't mean it as a bad smirk. I'm you're just like, like, that's what I've been doing the last three years. Like, um. And I think in some ways what uh, lots of other folks have done previous to us coming into this, especially in the open and relational world, um, which by the way, well, I think we've already said, you know, Gerard wasn't necessarily open and relational. He wasn't an open and relational theologian. So it's hilarious to dive into these things and to be reading stuff and realize, oh man, men and women have been wrestling with these things for quite some time. And I'm, I'm like you, same thing. Like a few years ago when I started thinking about this stuff, I had a visceral reaction to it. I, mm -hmm. very hard to, it's a scary thing to, um, deprogramming. Yeah. Deprogram, I think is the way to say it. Like learning is fun, but the unlearning part of the learning is super challenging. And there's a lot of reasons why, I mean, you may have grown up like me. I don't know, but I mean, I grew up, you know, my brain, I don't want to say brainwashed. I don't, I don't mean it to be that negative. But in a lot of ways, it, that's what it is. Um, you're conditioned to think this particular way. And if you don't, you, there's, there's no room. You'll get kicked out. And we all know what that means. That means hell. So when you grow up like that, of course, you're going to, of course, you're going to panic. So yeah, I relate to that. Um, and I still do at times, but the good news is the more I've wrestled with it, the better I feel about it and the more comfortable I am with it. And if I, I'm not sure comfort's the right word. But I, I love the idea because it has to do with love, you know, and all of this comes, all that keeps being infused with my own relationship with my kids and, you know, what I would have expected from them and the lines that I draw and the boundaries that I have. Um, and so if that's the way I operate, then I think that that's the way God operates. And mm. then, yeah, thinking about God and Mother Mary and other situations like that. It seems to me like that is the way it goes. The problem is consent opens the door to, to evil because then, then you have to say, well, does God, is God not strong enough? I mean, and that, that's definitely a, the way a lot of not people Not strong go. enough to stop evil. Right. Yeah. 
And what open relational theology would typically say at that moment is something like, you know, it, it depends on how you define strength. And so what we would want to do is define strength relationally versus authoritatively. And, you know, say something like, look, there's a difference, like who's stronger, uh, uh, Dwayne the Rock Johnson or Mother Teresa? And all of a sudden that begins to frame it like, oh, well, of course, if they're doing a, their arm wrestling, you know, the Rock is probably going to win. But Mother Teresa, well, I guess we should say, we don't know this for sure. Dwayne Johnson's probably a good guy. Who knows? But I'm assuming that a century or two from now, you know, the stuff that Mother Teresa was involved in, we're going to be more, you know, it's going to be more um, long lasting and uh, sustainable. And that's the, that's the real depth of strength. Like what's, mm. who's stronger? The guy standing, that lone uh, Chinese guy standing at Tiananmen Square in front of that tank in that famous picture that came out a few years ago. Is it that guy or is it, or is it the Chinese government? Well, obviously you explain it one way. It's the Chinese government. There's no doubt, but you explain it another way. That guy was leaning into something that to me feels like, no, that's the fabric of the universe right there, bro. You're not going to take that down with a tank or a nuclear weapon or anything. There's something deeper going on. And so I still think God is strong. It's just a relational strength versus a authoritative strength. Yeah. Um, when I know we didn't have a chance to get into open and relational theology in the same way we did with mimetic theory there, but it's okay. I feel like you've alluded to it in different ways, talking about like uh, that there's an undetermined future. God experiences time moment by moment, and that God is deeply connected with God's own creation. Um is that a fair, like, 30-second picture of, of open relational theology? Yeah, I think, I think you said it really well. And whatever we don't get to today, see, here's the beauty. People can just get the book. Read it in the and book. And read it. <laughs> Which, by the way, uh, another plug, Theology of Consent by Jonathan Foster. That's right. Uh, um, theology of Consent, Mimetic Theory in an Open and Relational Universe. Love it. Yeah. Um, so one of the things that that does... Uh, is it puts us in a different framework where um, uh, like there's a lot more that's dependent on us, right? Like some of us have been in church circles where we say like, well, it's not dependent on me and my job is to um, let go and let God, Jesus take the wheel and I'll kind of step out of this and let you do your thing. And what you're saying is like, no, no, like that's not actually how it works is it's like Jesus is asking you to take the wheel and, um, and God is asking you not to let go, but to engage in a way that is redemptive and purposeful and meaningful. And, um, I I'm putting words in your mouth here, but here, here is something that you wrote that I love. You said an evolving universe depends on us for God does not force her will. Like, like talk a little too. bit about like how that changes the way that we think about and engage with God and even like in our everyday life. Yeah, that's such a good point. And it's so challenging because me too, I grew up in a situation uh, where the message was constantly, constantly, you need to let, you know, you need to let go of your passions, your dreams, your desires, your ideas, and you need to let God. And I understand the sentiment, right? I mean, people were well-intentioned to say that. 
But now that we've had a bit of enlightenment, now that we've had the benefit of, you know, a little bit of uh, intellectual growth, we realize that that's, that's probably a little bit uh, backwards. Just as like, if my kid came into the room, um, and had dreams and ideas in the same way that I wouldn't say to them, oh, those are terrible. You know, your desires are bad. You need to repent of that and just do what I say. I mean, look, I tried that when they were one, you know, for a few months, it kind of worked. It was fun, but it was over by the time they were like 18 months, right? So in the same way that a good earthly parent wouldn't do that, how much more so with God? And it's, it's, again, it's antithetical to love. I don't think love is interested in using or controlling or forcing. I don't think love needs to tell us what to do. And again, while I understand the sentiment, we definitely want to be open to the movement of love and what's going on. And there's always these new things that we're interested in opening. Yeah, it's very much a relational world, which means our choices matter and our ideas matter in if God is love, and this is a Tom Ord thing, some people may be familiar with him. Tom's a good friend of mine. You know, he wrote a book called God Can't, and so he's he's famous for that. Uh, but it's an open relational process theology thing. If God is love, then love, you know, can't control. Love can't fix it. God can't fix it. And so all that to say that in that respect, and I say this respectfully, that that in that respect, God is not the answer. Actually, God might be the question. Hmm. So hmm. to those kitschy Facebook posts, you know, that we all see after a, some tragedy happens, uh, you know, well, God's the answer. Actually, I think God's the question asking us if we will partner with him or her or it to be the answer together, because that's, that's, uh, represents consent, I think, because if God is the answer, I mean, for crying out loud, God need, God should just fix some of the really bad stuff that's going on. So I think it's a partnership thing and that's a relational thing. It's an entanglement thing and it's really beautiful, but it, yeah, it's hard. It's challenging. So good. Um, well, again, I have so many other things that we could talk about, but as we're kind of wrapping up our time here, I wonder if, um, for folks that are on their own sort of theological journey, um, that are finding more questions than answers that are finding things that they had held on to things that were maybe even sort of like stable and would have been foundational for them. They're finding like some of that crumbling apart and they're starting on their own sort of path of that. Was there anything for you that as you started on your kind of path of, of your faith evolving and changing and asking these new and different questions and exploring new and different things? Were there any practices, any um, things that you did, any parts of your life that it's like, oh, this was a helpful thing for me in that season that like this helped me through that season? Um, yeah, I, I would love to like if there's anything that worked for you or that made sense for you in that season that could maybe be helpful for others as they're processing heady theological things, but like somehow that it's working itself out in their lives and their bodies and their, yeah. Right. Well, I'm glad you mentioned your lives and your bodies. I think that's really important. Um, I, I've had to move a lot to process the stuff I've gone through. The, the physical activity has been super important. And I realized a few years ago, oh, it, it kind of made sense because we embody these things. So there were some days when I'd be sitting 
you know, down and all of a sudden, like my, my body would almost levitate and be like, oh crap, I got to go take a run, go take a hike. I love to get in the mountains and get away. Um, and there's something about exercising that has helped me exorcise. I don't know if they've been demons, but you know, to exercise, to exorcise the, the demonic or the negative or the, the oppression, whatever those, that stuff is. So I think having a routine to do that has been extremely helpful for me. Um, going to see a counselor has been extremely helpful for me. A lot of times, you know, if you have a good counselor, they're not going to tell you the answers. Kind of like God, you know, they just, they feed stuff back to you and then you get to consent and decide yourself. So that's been great. I started reading, well, I mean, I've always kind of read a lot, but I went on hyper speed reading a few years ago and I started writing which for some people might be journaling for me. A lot of stuff I've written is just, I don't write because I have answers. I write because I have questions. And so there's something about the pressure of, oh my, I'm going to put this out in the world. It forces me to, you know, come up with decent responses. Mm -hmm. They're not always great answers, but I think they're reasonably intelligent responses. Um, finding a safe space is another one. That's super hard, especially if you're in a, church setting where, you know, so much has been disassembled. So I would say proceed cautiously, but there's a lot of groups out here, like stuff like Mike's doing and on all of us, there's, there's a lot of folks that Mike and I know that are starting little groups. I do this in-person thing at a pub on Monday nights hmm. and it's, it's so far it's been 10 or 12 people. But it's like, it's similar to what lots of different people are doing all over the country, trying to still interested in love, still interested in mercy and grace and goodness, but, um, just trying to find a safe space. So that's super helpful to have. Yeah. Those kinds of things, walking, reading, writing, counseling, find it, do your best to find a safe space. That's good. That's give yourself helpful. a lot of grace. <laughs> it's hard to give other people grace if you haven't given yourself grace. And so just, yeah, give, build, build that interior space to give yourself grace. Hmm. That's so good, man. Oh, I'm so glad that, um, we got to chat on this Me stuff too. and, uh, we'll probably have to find another time to get into more stuff. Probably. But, uh, so your book is a theology of consent coming out sometime, maybe mid October ish. And, um, where can folks track with you and follow you and find you online? Yeah. JonathanFosterOnline.com is probably the easiest way. I do a little podcasting. I do a little writing. I have a Patreon thing. Um, but if you just go to JonathanFosterOnline.com, you'll, you'll find it. Awesome. Well, thanks so much. It's super fun to have you on here. Thank I'm you. glad we got to do this. Me too. Thank you, man.